This is one of the warmest uh, Sundays we've had in, it feels like, three months, and uh, so I feel like people need to wake up a little bit. We're not going to do some kind of stretching thing, but we are, we need to work on our clapping. I'm just going to say that during one of the songs, it was very half-hearted, okay? So either we're going to clap or we're not, okay? The Gunthers were 100%. Everyone else was like, uh, come on, people. It's even echoey in here, and it sounded lame. So, um, so we got to work on our clapping a little bit and uh, wake up before we get here. Um, so, uh, but it is great to be here. And yeah, when 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 I saw the McCurneys coming in with Sadie, uh, we have been praying praying for Sadie for a long time. It's a miracle that she's here. So again, let's give glory to God for Sadie for being here. It really is a miracle that she's with us and. Um, really glad uh, we got a, we got a good crew this morning and so so I'm really excited about what God's going to reveal to us through his word. Today is of course another sort of celebration. It's Super Bowl Sunday. It's more of a funeral for me. I'm not bitter at all about Super Bowl Sunday. Although the Chiefs should be playing today. Um I'm not bitter at all. But uh my wife apparently uh, we are watching as a, as a, uh, uh, as an argument against the Super Bowl. We are watching Legally Blonde <laughs> instead. <laughs> I'd have never seen Legally Blonde. I'm gonna hate it. I hope I'm gonna hate it just by the title. If I was, I'd be, anyway. Um, but, uh, uh, but I it probably won't hate it as much as I'll hate the Super Bowl game because I really don't care who wins uh, anymore. Um, but uh, So it is the Super Bowl today, which does remind me, uh, as I was thinking about uh, this morning and what we're going to be looking at, is I played high school football. I know I don't look like I played football, but I played football. And it was just a little, like, small step below the NFL. This was Chatham High School football, okay? And uh, I played running back for the CKSS Golden Hawks which would have put the Laurier Golden Hawks to shame. Uh, anyways, the CKSS Golden Hawks. And I remember my, uh, my grade 11 year when I was playing senior boys football. I thought I had made it. I was starting running back for the senior boys football team. Uh, this is as good as life can get right here. Okay, as I was running out onto that field with probably 12 people watching the game on the sidelines. Um, so I thought this is as good as life can get. And in that game, in the first game of the season, we were playing, we were playing one of our rivals, which there's only five teams in the county, so they're all rivals. But this was Wallaceburg, okay? This is Wallaceburg, yeah, I know. You know, you don't know anything about Wallaceburg, probably. No. But it was Wallaceburg, and uh, I scored three touchdowns in that game. No one? I got a few pity wows. Okay, well, almost as bad as the clapping for our, one of our songs. Um, so we, I scored three touchdowns in that game, which really put me at a high. I said, if my life was, well, couldn't even, but now I'm, I'm starting to think I'm, I'm pretty good at this. The next game, uh, the next game, we were playing one of our other rivals, uh, the, the farm town, Blenheim. We were playing the Blenheim Bobcats, okay? And they were the farm, big farm, farm guys. And I thought, I'm pretty good at this. I, I started out with three touchdowns in one game, first game of the season. And one of the things, I was running back, but I also returned kicks. So there was the opening kickoff, and I was th- feeling pretty high about myself. And uh, I remember receiving the kick, uh, running to the left because it was going to be a, a left, left, left side. Re- I don't even remember what the play is called anymore. Left, whatever the left side return was, and a couple of guys missed their blocks clearly. But I thought I was so good. I'd forgotten that I, as a running back, if no one else does what they're doing, you literally are pointless. A couple of guys missed their blocks, and I didn't even see them coming. But a big farmer guy absolutely destroyed me as I was I was running this way turned and I got laid flat out 
and got my bell rung, and I was out for at least the half, and I played terribly that game. We didn't score any points. I don't even think I put any stats on the stat sheet that game. And I realized an important lesson that I was only as good as the people that I was connected to. And a running back, when you see a running back that's good in football, it's usually not because the running back's that good. It's because the people blocking for him are really good. So just to give you a football hint, if a running back racks up a whole bunch of yards, it's because his blockers are actually good, uh, uh, good, and he's able to run through wherever they're blocking. But I realized an important lesson that I was only as good as the people I was connected to, and my identity was more about the people blocking for me than it was about my own ability and my own gifts. My identity was more about my teammates, less about me as a player. Really important that we're going to learn tonight is when we're talking about, uh, we, we've been going through a, a, a series called How People Change. This is our discipleship strategy. We've looked at communication, which is being dependent upon God in prayer. We've looked at celebration, the importance of coming, coming every Sunday to worship with God together. Today we're going to look at the importance of connection. The difference between not just attending church, but being a part of a church. And I believe really seriously, that if you don't connect with others, you're really not going to grow. If you don't put yourself in a community of people to hold you accountable, to submit to, and sometimes to obey, you really will not grow as a child of God. Tim Keller actually says this. Tim Keller says this. Those who have been in our First Connections group will know. Tim Keller says this. We will not know God, change deeply, nor win the world, apart from community. We will not know God, change deeply, nor win the world, apart from community. Begs the question, is that true? And if it is, I think this is really hard for us, especially those of us coming from a Canadian culture, which would be, I think, all of us. Those of us coming from this North American Canadian culture, this is really, really hard to live. Not only, not only because just logistically we're very disconnected from each other. We all live in our separate homes. We pay our separate bills and we don't like to, it's kind of uncomfortable to have even some people over to our house or to share things in our life. We want our name on different things. So we are really disconnected in our Canadian context. My, uh, my boss, Pastor John, back at Temple, the lead pastor there, just came back from Togo. Togo is nothing like it is here. You got, you got grandparents and aunts and uncles and, and just peep other neighbors coming over to your house uninvited, walking through your front door. Most homes don't even have a door. People are just walking in, looking in your windows, wondering what you're up to. We are really, we are really uncomfortable with that. So logistically, this is really hard because a lot of places in the world just understand community more than we do. But I think even culturally and what we've been ingrained in, what we've actually grown up in, we have a hard time with connecting with people because we are a culture of consumption, not connection. Whereas a lot of people in the world rely on each other to find their identity, to form their identity, we rely on what we consume in order to form our identity. We have a culture of consumption. Now, don't get me wrong, the problem's not, you know, consuming to live. You have to consume some things in order to live. But we flip that, and what we live is we live in order to consume. We work and do all the things that we do in order to consume the things that we want out of life. And I think the problem is that that culture has really crept into the church and it's stunted our growth specifically in this area. Whereas churches try to compete with Walmart for the world's attention. Rather than putting ourselves in submission to a group of people, living in obedience to God and in accountability to others, we try to compete with the bowling alley down the street for the, for, for the world's attention. And, and this is, and, and, and kind of the, what's come out of that is words like, 
And this is from, this is from Christian social, sociologist, uh, uh, Christian Smith said this, that especially amongst younger Christians in the younger Christian context in a lot of churches, words like obedience and submission just aren't a part of the vocabulary. They don't even understand what that is. Churches will never talk about obedience or submission or accountability. It's just not a part of the vocabulary. And God is not the holy one that you submit to, that you follow with your life, that, that changes your life. God is more like this divine therapist that you go to when you need him in order to make you happy. It's really just consuming something different than that you were consuming before, but in a consumer mentality, the consumer, not Christ, is always king. The consumer, not Christ, is always king. So I just want to say this as we begin this morning. At Restoration Church, we are not going to convince you to join because we have better deals than Walmart or can do things better than the church down the street. We're not the best church in town. We're not trying to convince you because you're going to get a 50% off deal you're tithing next week, okay? (laughs) Yeah, Sam's like, forget it, I am out. (laughs) I am out. We are trying to convince you to, to join because we believe that Christ offers a better life together and that I believe you need a church body in order to grow. And we need you here because we need you in order to grow as well. So here's what we're talking about today, that Christian connection changes you from being a mere cultural consumer to being an influencer of Christ. So before I begin, I didn't pray, so let me let me pray, and then we're going to look in in God's Word. God, we love you so much. And we're not trying to do anything differently than what what your Word says, Lord. We're just trying to discover who you are and, and be conformed into that image. And so, God, I pray that you would bless us, that you would change us as we look at your word today, as, as we wrestle with some of the things that we're going to see in it. I pray that as a church that we would be connected, that we wouldn't merely just come to church, but that we would be a church together, that we would be, as, as the church is like the body of Christ or like a household of faith, a family together, that submits to one another, that relies on one another, and in that, that we would change in accordance to what your image is for our life, Lord. So we, we love you and we pray for all these things. In your name, amen. So as we've been going through our series, How People Change, uh, it's, it's our discipleship strategy. And what we've looked at is that discipleship is this big word that Christians like to use, but it's an important word because it's what Jesus has told us to do. But discipleship is really restoring the original creation that God meant for your life. It's really, if I can put it in the world's terms, it's finding yourself. If you've always been wondering, what is my life supposed to be? It's actually restoring that image of God that God had created you to be in the beginning. It's who we're always meant to be as God created. It's to reflect him into this world. It's how does God love? We are supposed to love that way. How does God forgive? We are supposed to forgive that way. What does God look like? We're supposed to look like that in this world. That's what it means to be created in his image, to shine his attributes to this world. No other thing was created that way but humans. If I can put it this way, I've always thought of it this way, is it's as if God gave you his last name. So I remember when I was a little kid, and not I don't know how old I was, but everyone else at my school started spitting, because that's what you do to be cool, right? You, you walk around and you spit. And the bigger the spit, you, at least this is what I grew up, this, maybe this is just chatter, okay? <laughs> This could be just Chatham. So I'm coming from a Chatham-Kent context here. But you spit to be cool. And the bigger the spit, the cooler you were. That's how I was attracted to Nikki. I'm just kidding. She, <laughs> she was not that. Um, but, uh, but I remember my dad saw me spit once. And his rationale for telling me to stop was like, Ottaways don't do that. And you could argue whether that's a good answer from a parent or not. But the point was, my dad was trying to tell me that Aaron, as an Ottaway, you're not just Aaron, you're a part of something bigger than that. And you have an example and reputation to live up to, apart from just being an uh, Aaron. 
In fact, your identity is less about being Aaron and more about being an Ottaway. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so when God created you in his image, it's like he gave you his last name and says, you are to represent my name in this world. But of course, what happened was when when something called sin entered the world, it's as if we said, I don't want that name. I want my own name on the jersey. I don't want your name, Yahweh. I want my own name on the jersey and reflect my own attributes and my own way of life, not yours. And sin came into this world. And I believe that through discipleship, we are restoring what it looks like to have God's name on our jersey. That's what discipleship is. Through Jesus, we are being restored to that image to look like God in this world. And I would say this as an aside. And there's some, there's some Bible college people, even some on staff. So this is gonna really, it's gonna pat them on the back a little bit. This is why I'm not going to be a cool pastor and say theology isn't important. Because really to be discipled and to change, we have to look at what God looks like. Or else we have no idea what to actually, how to live in this world. If you are not interested in theology, and theology is not this crazy word, it just means to study God. So if we are not interested in theology, if we knock theology, then we're really knocking what we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be living in this world. It's like theology is kind of like when you're doing a puzzle. It's like the picture on the back of the box. Even little kids' puzzles, I have a really hard time putting those together. Anyone with me on that? Dad, you've tried? No? no? You're complete. Albert's like, no, I don't, I don't need the back of the box. Okay, forget the illustration, Albert. But I need the back of the box in order to guide me in how I put together the puzzle. So that's why we need to look at God and look at theology in order to put together the puzzle of our life because that's who we are supposed to look like. And really today when we look at connection, this goes right into like the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of theology, and it's looking at, and I'm not gonna, we're not gonna be there long, but I wanted to point this out. But even in how we relate to one another, we are looking at the Holy of Holies of God Himself in something called the Trinity. It's called the Trinity. Now the Bible never says the words Trinity, but it's clearly identified in the Bible. And, and just for a little review for some of you, or if this is brand new, but God, the God we worship is three persons. Okay? There's three, thi- there's three truths about the Trinity. God is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Next thing is this. This is about the Trinity. Each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. That means Jesus is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The Bible clearly affirms that. The third truth is this. There's one God. So we don't worship three different gods, but we worship one God. And people have tried to paint pictures of how those two fully make sense, and they failed ultimately. But these are the three things that the Bible clearly, clearly affirms. And if you kind of stray from these, you can get yourself into some big trouble. But the, the early church, and as they went through history, chose to use this word. It's not even used in the Bible, but it's the word called perichoresis. Now you can impress your friends. Say perichoresis. Perichoresis. And um, perichorus is, is how all three persons of the Godhead relate to one another and submit to one another. It's two words together that mean around and give way. It's how they relate and submit to one another, almost like a, a, a dance. They all know, you know those musicals when the music starts and everyone just knows exactly what to do and they all know exactly how to dance? That's like the three persons of the Trinity. They, they know how to interact with one another. They each have different roles and yet none is more important than the other one. You can see this play out in how they relate to one another in John chapter 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, one person of the Trinity, and the Word was with God, referring to God the Father, that they were actually face-to-face before creation even took place, but it also says the Word was God. So God was, Jesus as God was face-to-face with God, God the Father as well in the beginning, and they each had different roles, but they could relate to one another. That's perichoruses. Probably the most stark example of this is in John 16. 
John 16, 12 to 15, Jesus says these words, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But he refers to one person of, this, of, of the Trinity. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you. So you got one person of the Trinity submitting to another person of the Trinity. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Next slide says this, next slide, he will glorify me, so one person of the Trinity is glorifying another person of the Trinity, for you will take what is mine and declare it to you, and then another person of the Trinity is mentioned, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it. So you can see in just one passage of scripture, all three persons of the Godhead operating to get together in this perfect symphony that we don't completely understand. But that's who God is. It's the God that we worship. It's it's the Trinity. And the point that we're taking away this morning is that we worship a very relational God. We worship a very relational God. He's not some consumer who therefore needed to create in order to satisfy his identity. His identity was completely wrapped up in, in this relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where there was infinite joy and love and peace all within that relationship. And here's the important part. When God creates us in his image, in Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning, God creates humans in his image. In Genesis 2, verse 18, we only read this in weddings, but it doesn't just apply to weddings. What does God say? It is not good for this person, this man, to be alone. Because he says, if I am to create in my image, therefore this person needs to be connected to someone else because for them to really live out the image of God, they need to be in relationship with someone else. You can't live out the image of God by yourself. It's not good for this person to be alone. Do you understand what I'm saying? We place our identity within other relationships, not just about ourselves. It's a massive part of changing and knowing God is in, con- is in connection with other people. So with that being said, what does that look like in the church? So go to Hebrews chapter 10. This is going to be our passage today. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but Hebrews chapter 10. We've been in, we were in Hebrews last week. I love the book of Hebrews, but we're not going to be there for, for the foreseeable future. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. I'm going to read it in a second. But Hebrews 10 is all about because of Christ's sacrifice, which is once and for all, says in verse 19, which I'm not going to read, but it says, we have confidence to approach God. We have confidence to be with God in relationship with him because of what Jesus has done. So if you've ever thought, I'm not good enough. God is ashamed of me. Uh, God will never accept me. If we have faith in Jesus, that is enough for us to have confidence to to go before God in the Holy of Holies, to approach God. And because of that, there's three let us, not let us, like as in salad, but let us. In verse 22, it says, let us draw near with assurance because Jesus has done what he said he would. We can, we can approach God with confidence. We have assurance that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And actually, I'm going to announce this at the end of our service, but this Tuesday, we are going to be approaching the throne of God. We have confidence before the throne of God in prayer because we have assurance Jesus did what he's going to do. So we can ask him for big things in our life. So this Tuesday at 6.30 at Cedar Hill United Church, we are going to be having a prayer night. So I'm going to announce some more details at the end. But we have assurance we can say we can say big things, we can ask big things from God because Jesus done what he said he would do. Not only that, it says, let us hold fast. In the next verse, in verse 23, let us hold fast to that confession without wavering. And then the other other, uh, practical outworking of what Jesus has done is found in verse 24 that we're going to look at. As a church, it says this. Because of what Jesus has done for you, because of your faith you have, verse 24 says this. And let us consider how to stir one another up or stir one, stir up one another to love and good works. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in this passage in Hebrews 10, clearly when it says don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, clearly there were some people 
who weren't getting the connection thing. You know, their faith was their own, but they weren't regularly connecting with other Christians as a part of a, a church body. We don't know all the details of why it was said. Likely, it, what was happening is, if you look right after this, you'll see that there were people who drifted away from the faith that they once previously uh, committed to. And it seems like those who weren't connected to a church were drifting away from the faith. And so that's why the author says, don't neglect meeting together. Because if you do, you seem to be drifting from your faith. So we don't know all the ins and outs of what was going on, but apparently some people were drifting away, those that had left the faith. I'll say this in this passage going along here in all the New Testament. There is never any sense of church life without community. You just don't find that in the New Testament. There's really never any sense of church life without community. Like doing church on your own. That's kind of an oxymoron. Because the word for church is ecclesia, and that's not some, some you know, word in the sky. That just means an assembly of people. So for church to be church, there has to be a group of people there. So there's never any sense of church life without community. And look at the early church in Acts chapter 2 for them when they would greet together. We looked at verse 43 last week, but I want to read to the end of verse 47. This is the early church uh, just as they were beginning to meet together. It said this in Acts 2, and we don't have 242. Last week we looked at 42. It said they were, they were uh, 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 learning the apostle teaching. They were breaking bread. They were praying. There was fellowship. And then it says this in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Wouldn't this be awesome? I'm pr- We're praying for this on Tuesday night. That awe would be upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. We just don't understand that. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Next one. And day by day, not just Sunday, okay? Not just Sunday, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And that says this at the end. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. See the connection that even the early church had that they got immediately after they were given the Great Commission. We need to be together. We can't do this on our own. We day by day need to be together in order to grow in our faith. Common images in the New Testament of a church is they're all relational. The, the body of Christ is a relational picture. The household of God or family of God is a relational picture of what the church is supposed to look like. They're all relational pictures. So what does this look like in our passage in Hebrews chapter 10? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 10. What does this look like? In, the, in verse 24, it says this, a really practical thing. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And this is what happens when we get, gather together. Hebrews 10 is telling us, when you gather together as a church, don't neglect that, get together day by day. And then it says, consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. We really need this verse in, in our day, in our Canadian context, because stir up, we, we, this really keeps us in check, because stir up is usually negative. It actually means like to provoke or irritate one another to love and good works. That's really what it means. It's usually used in a negative sense. The only time that this word is actually used in the entire Bible is when there's a guy named Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts, and they get on each other's nerves so much about a certain thing that it says they had a sharp disagreement, same word, and they eventually split and go their own ways. It's the exact same word when it says provoke or stir up one another to love and good works, but used in a positive sense. If you can picture it, it's like coming into church, it's like people poking you, you know? <laughs> you like being poked by a whole bunch of people? It's like, yeah, get out of my personal space. Even Facebook pokes bother me, you know? Like, you're like, ah, get out of my personal space, right? If someone's poking you, uh, it's, it's annoying. 
but it almost has the sense that we're irritating one another to love and good works. My, my kid, when they want something, is always poking me, and I hate it, and they're my kid. So if John Hodgins decides to poke me on a Sunday morning, I might not react well to that. In fact, I'll be like, John, this is weird between me and you if you're poking me, okay? But it literally says, like, provoke one another to love and good works. But the sense is you people are provoking you, even if it's kind of ugly sometimes, they're pushing you or poking you to be something different than you were before. Church is not about coming in and being comfortable and leaving the same way you were before. This sounds very uncomfortable. In fact, it sounds kind of annoying, <laughs> you know? And it could be annoying. That's why some of you uh, in your church experience, you've had people either speak into your life or tell you some things that you didn't like to hear. And how many, how many of you have responded poorly to that before? That's been annoying to you? Probably a lot of hands are going up, right? Sometimes you, you, we say things, call people to, and calling people to something better than what they've been living before, to love and good works, isn't often pretty. Same sense as in another passage in the Bible. I think I got this on here, Haley, in Proverbs. Do I have that on there? Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Iron sharpening iron is, is, is like, it's, it's loud. It's, you know, there, there's, there's friction. But there has to be those things in order for iron to sharpen. If you just put a towel and make iron feel comfortable, it will never get sharper. But there has to be another iron coming at it with friction in order for both of those pieces to be sharp. And so actually provoking or even irritating one another actually pushes us to be something we are different than before, to change in our walk with God. I've heard the old church adage that church would be great if not for the people. I always respond with, well, then it would cease to be church because that's not a church if there's no people in it. It's just an empty, useless building. See, we find ourselves, guys, we find ourselves, it's not always pretty, but we find ourselves together. Most people run away to establish some kind of identity, like I need to run away to find myself. We believe the opposite. We believe, come be a part of our family and discover who you were meant to be. And I believe that I am here, and you are here with me to sharpen me. You all are here with me. Not just, I, I'm under no, I'm under no, you know, vision that I am here on stage, if we had a stage, and I'm telling you how to live your life, and it's just me apart from you. You are here to sharpen me. I need you here to sharpen me. I was just talking with some of you uh, just last week about this, that I need you here. Even if we don't always see eye to eye on things, and even if it looks like we're provoking and poking each other, we need to do that in order to discover who we're created to be. Because I've got dull edges, and so do you. But in order to change, we need each other and so you need to be committed to this body of people. In fact, the one another's like this one, like stir up one another. The one another's really battle that consumerist pull. I mean, how do you live out the one another's without submitting yourself in obedience to other people? How do you encourage one another? How do you bear with one another? How do you rebuke one another or, or admonish one another? And mostly, how do you love one another without submitting to a group of people? And most people, if they're just going to church or hopping from this church to this church to this church to this church, it's just impossible to live any of those one another's found in the Bible unless you plant yourself in a family of people. And then whether you want to or not, you'll be forced to live out those one another's in your life. And they help battle against that consumerist pull that we all grew up with. You might be saying, Aaron, why are you so worked up about this whole consumerism thing? What's the big deal? I'm not that worked up about it, okay? But 
But I am a little bit worked up about it, I'll admit. Because I think it's drifted into the church. And if it was just in the world, it's like, whatever, people going to Walmart, I don't care, although I hate Walmart. But, but, uh, but it's drifted into the church, I think, too much. And that churches are so desperate to succeed that they lose what they're calling people to. And that there's no membership, there's no accountability, it's just coming to an event with no accountability whatsoever. And that's just not church that I see in the New Testament. In fact, I think relinquishing our choice by submitting to a mentor or a community is a prerequisite for growth in Christ. To submit to Christ means you also need to submit to his other followers of his and, and have them hold you accountable. That's why actually uh, on, just a little plug here, on February 17th, there will be a membership meeting for those of you who are interested in membership. And that's really what membership is. You might be like, what's the point of membership? It's really to hold each other accountable to the things we say we want to live. That's what membership is. So that we as a leadership can hold you accountable. Not in a negative way. Sometimes it might feel like a whole bunch of poking at you. But we need that in order to continue to grow. But here's why I think a consumeristic mentality is so dangerous, leaked into the church, because it's never just about church. If we don't call people to something more and just have them switch consumer sources, like go to another church when I need it, every aspect of life, if we view it like that, we will never really change or grow in Christ, for one, in, in our sexuality. With so many people, rather than identifying with a group of people like a church, they identify with their sexuality, And the problem is in a consumeristic mindset, those of you who are struggling with pornography, which leads to even human trafficking, that's just, that's just a selfish sexual consumption. It's like there's no sacrifice, there's no love, there's no commitment, there's no accountability. It's just people that are being consumed and discarded when no longer needed. Like an item on a shelf at Walmart. And what has really come into the, the news, maybe the, the greatest stain on our consumer mentality is in the area of abortion. And that the greatest gift that God has given us is really just the end line of what a consumer mentality leads to in abortion. That life itself becomes consumeristic and commodified. Do you know this? Because, well, you know the New York decision, I'm sure many of you heard about it, that now up to birth it's legalized. You know Canada's been that way for like 50 years. So everyone's freaking out, but Canada's been like that for about 50 years. Um, which I'm not excusing, but that's just the reality of the culture that we live in. Um, Do you know a life, though, has no value unless one chooses to give it in that view? A life has zero value unless one chooses to give it value. In this greatest gift that God has given us, life itself, which should be, as a Christian perspective, should be protected and defended and spoken up for, regardless of if anyone wants the life or not, has no value unless the mother chooses to give it. That's why you have on one end of a hospital a mother having an abortion at the exact same time as another end of the hospital them trying to save the life. It has no, it's not about, it's not about the life. It's just whether someone chooses to give it value or not. There's no value apart from choice. So I think as churches we have to stop playing games and call people to something more than just going to church, but being a part of a church. That you'll be held accountable to something. A couple of things, because uh, I, gotta, I gotta keep going. In, in, as, as we look at this, what we can learn. Expect transformation within community, not before it. Expect transformation within community, not before it. Too often churches, or even even in my own view, church has expected people to change before they actually come. Right? In order to come, you got to look like us. But that's just not the way transformation happens. Transformation happens, someone comes, and then they are transformed within our community. 
So expect transformation within community, not before it. In fact, that's how it mostly happens when people are changed. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, said this. He's a Christian sociologist, said, most people are converted because they become attached to Christians before they even convert to the Christian faith. They become more attached to Christians than they do with non-Christians, and then they later on convert to the Christian faith because their mind has changed, their lifestyle has changed, and they become they fall in love with this family of people more than the people that they've known before. So expect transformation within the community, not before it. And I think this, that as we, we're all in different stages and we're all walking this path together and we're all being transformed. In the case of abortion, I want people to be transformed so much. This is, this is my dream and this is, this should be our dream that people are transformed so much in our community that a baby's life would be protected, a mother would be cared for, that our dream shouldn't be for abortion to be illegal. Our dream should be, as my friend just said this past week, not that abortion would be illegal, but that abortion would be unthinkable in our community. Because we're gonna care for that baby. We're going to love that baby. No matter what has happened in your life, we're going to care for you and provide you, like in Acts 2, all of the means necessary for you to raise that child. That it wouldn't just be illegal, but that it would be unthinkable because of having our minds and hearts change so much as a community. So expect transformation within community, not before it. And really quickly, a transformed community attracts people who aren't actually believers at the time. A transformed community attracts people to the faith. If you look at this, if you look at our passage where it says, let us consider to stir up one another to love and good works. Good works is the practical outworking of love. And even that, that, that word good is this attractive, it's kalos, it's, it's an attractive word. But love for one another is the proof of our faith. If you looked at Acts 2, go back to Acts chapter 2. Haley, just a couple slides back. It might just be one slide back. Okay, go to the next slide. If you see in Acts 2, how are people coming to faith in this passage? It's, they weren't having Billy Graham crusades, although there's nothing wrong with the Billy Graham crusade. But it says this in verse 46. They're meeting together, attending the temple, they're breaking bread and alms, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, they're praising God, and then it says this, having favor with all the people. And then it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So those who are being saved are those who are attracted to our transformed community. And I can actually look around at people in this room where that's exactly what has happened. I, I can fully say this with confidence. Those that I've seen come to faith, and I'm, I can look at people that I've seen come to faith, it hasn't been Aaron's amazing insights or arguments that brought them to faith. It's that they fell in love with a church. They fell in love with a group of people first, and they were attracted to what that church stood for. And then they came to faith. So a transformed community attracts people who aren't in faith to faith. So I would say this, what are you, what are you holding back from that would cause you to not be provoked or to be stirred up? to not be a part of this community. Really quickly, because i got to move on. How do we do this, though? And just a couple practical things from the passage that I'll talk about, because I, I really got to, I'm going to be done. I don't want to hold you too long. A couple things from the passages in this. Verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So how do we actually do this? How do we grow together? If that's what, can, if that's what grow, growth means. How do we grow together? I would say this, one, one huge thing is this, and this is where it starts, intentionality. We grow together by being intentional. Where in that verse is, do I get that? It's a little Bible study help for you. Where in that verse, in verse 24, do I get that it has to start with intentionality? There's one word. Consider. Doesn't say just stir up one another to love good works. It says be intentional about it. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So it starts with intentionality. See guys, we can be together. We can host church services, but the actual discipleship, discipling doesn't happen if you're not intentional about it. If you haven't before thought about how, who am I going to reach today? What am I, what am I going to say? How are we going to meet? It doesn't just happen. 
Like we're discipling like gushers, like we gush discipleship no matter what we do, wherever we go. It's when someone decides to take the step to commit or to plan or whatever. Like God in the garden seeking out people hiding away from him, Alice Freiling says this, as disciple makers, we will frequently find ourselves looking for people who are hiding from God and often they're just waiting to be found. And I'll say this, and I'm just smashing on Canadian culture today, because really this kind of topic kind of goes there. We are so nice about it that we have a hard time being intentional. We're like, well, I don't want to disturb them. I don't want to, like, you know, say something that might, might, you know, they might hate me for it. We're so overly Canadian, we have a hard time being intentional in our discipleship. But often people are just waiting to be found to seek them out. And they want to be upset. They want you to disturb them because they're looking for something different than how they've been living. So consider how to provoke someone. And I would say, and, and one, one big problem that you'll have to sort out that, that I just want to mention is this. And being intentional requires this word. It requires you to have margin in your life. Being intentional requires you to have margin in your life. And for some reason, margin is like a swear word to us. We think that if I have margin in my life, if I've planned margin in my life, and I don't tell people how busy I am and how packed my schedule is, people will think I'm lazy. For some reason, busyness has become the ethic that we aspire to. And I know this because every time I greet someone, I'm always on the tip of my tongue, like, oh, I'm just so busy. And we're trying to prove to people that we're doing something really important because we're so busy. But the problem is we have to create margin in order to be intentional. Derek Fuller, who's a church, past, church planter in Kitchener, said this. He said, we live in a society that seems to view busyness as a virtue. But he said, it's no badge of honor to be busy. All it takes to be busy all the time is to be too lazy to consider what's most important in life. And I get it. You, we have busy lives, and there's busy commitments. But I would say, what needs to change in your schedule in order for you to be intentional and discipling? If you're like, I'm not doing anything, I'm not being mentored, I'm not mentoring anyone else, something's got to give in your life for you to have margin to do that. Ed Stetzer, as I shared a couple weeks ago, says there's three things for effective discipling. One is truth, the other is posture, and the other one's a leader. And we might have a whole bunch of people, we have the Bible open, we've got people with the correct posture, but if there's no leader with time to mentor them, then we won't have effective discipling. So I would say this, choose less in order to give more. In fact, the next time someone says, Aaron, how you doing? Be like, actually, you know what? I got a pretty free schedule this week. Let's go out for coffee. And we need to choose to have some freedom in our schedule in order to give people more time. Lastly, what's the result? If you look at the last part, it says, not neglecting to meet together in verse 25, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ultimately, I think this is the biggest thing. We need each other in order to last. We need each other to change in our life in order to last. If we are not connected in a church and a family of God, Life gets discouraging, guys. And we simply won't last. And that was what happened in Hebrews chapter 10. People were falling off, bleeding through the cracks. It's because they neglected to meet together and weren't connected in a church. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've kind of fallen off a little bit because you've decided not to put yourself into a church or really be a part of a church. Guys, when I'm discouraged, when I wake up Sunday morning, if I didn't have people holding me accountable and if I didn't have to actually preach a message, <laughs> so that gets me to church. But there's sometimes on Sunday mornings, if no one was holding me accountable, it'd be really hard for me to come to church, even though I know I need it to grow. If I'm having a small group or a mentoring relationship, there's some days when I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to do this. 
And if there was no one holding me accountable, guess what? Probably wouldn't do it. But that's why you need to be a part of a church. To be a part of a community of people holding you accountable so that we could grow connected together. To be encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. And I think this, guys, without, without love, we simply won't have the patience to see each other change. So Jesus lays down his life for his friends amidst denial and abandonment. And I love at the end of, our, of the passage when it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible uses this a lot as a, as a way, as a, a, almost like a, um, like a, a way to uh, uh, get you to do what you need to do in your life. That Jesus is coming back, and we sang about that already. And it's a real thing that we hope for, that Jesus is coming back. That day is drawing near. 2,000 years ago, they were waiting for it because they didn't know when it was coming. And we still don't know when it's coming. And therefore, as a church, we want to be ready when Jesus comes back. And I think it's a powerful motivator in our life. That when Jesus comes back, do do you want to be like, Somewhere out apart from yourself trying to find yourself? Or do you want to be active discipling people and being changed in a church? There was, when I was in Bible school, um, when my dad and mom were coming to visit me, my room was normally an absolute wreck. But when my parents come, what do you do? Clean it up. Might be the only time you ever clean up your room. But you clean up all the, you know, you, I never touched a vacuum for months. And then finally, when I knew my parents were coming, I vacuumed my room. And I knew when they were coming, so I was able to kind of, you know, you know uh, uh, fake it a little bit. And they thought, wow, Aaron, you're doing pretty good. But that was the only day that I'd ever cleaned my room. Unfortunately for another friend of mine, uh, his parents showed up about three days earlier than he thought. And he thought, well, I'll clean up my room later. I'll get serious about cleaning up my room later on when I know my parents are coming. But his parents showed up three days earlier, so he didn't really even know when his parents were coming, and his room was an absolute wreck. And I could hear his mom, like, squeal when she opened the door because there's, like, rotten bananas on the floor and stuff. That's what happens when there's 18-year-old boys living in a dorm together. They're slops. See, knowing when your parents are coming, and we don't even know when our parents are coming, actually motivates us to be connected together, to not neglect meeting together as in the habit of some. Jesus is coming back, and as the song says, therefore, we'll wake up the sinner, we'll call back the saint. As annoying as that might be for you, That's what we're going to do. Wake each other up. Call each other back. Hold each other accountable. Provoke each other to love and good works as we see the day drawing near. Because we don't know when our Father, when our brother Jesus is coming back to receive us home. And so therefore, as the song says, we'll be a church ready for you. Let me pray, and then the team is going to lead us in a final song. God, we just, I pray that as we look in your your word, that we would feel the need to submit ourselves under your word, but also submit ourselves to each other. That we wouldn't neglect to meet together as some do. I pray that as a church, that all of us, not just, not just Pastor Aaron, but all of us would call back each other. That we'd wake each other up. Hold each other accountable. God, I pray that we would be a church, that Restoration Church, when you return, that we would be ready for you to come back. Lord, I pray that if there's some here that have been drifting, that have been avoiding really being connected into into a church, they're a Christian, but 
They're really not held accountable to what they believe. I pray that they would take that step today. Lord, I pray that there would be some here today who, who maybe don't even know you that would take that step to say, you know what, I don't want my identity to be, my identity to be about myself. I want it to be about being a child together of God with brothers and sisters, with a father in heaven, that my identity would be a Christian, not about myself. We pray to this end. We love you. We pray for this in your name. Amen. This song, All Creatures of Our God and King, really speaks about creation as a community, uh, bringing praise to God. Um, so it really is a, a fitting way to close off our, our service with everything that Aaron was talking about. You know, we're not consumers in the world, but we're part of this grand, grandly designed cosmos, and we, and we do belong to one another. And, and with one another together, singing praises to our Creator and our God. So would you stand with us as we sing All Creatures of Our God and King. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. All praise Him, Alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, Thou silver moon with softer gleam, All praise Him, All praise Him, Alleluia. Let's just raise that chorus again. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. 
You guys can have a seat. Just a couple of things before we dismiss. One thing is this. In view of what we've been talking about, uh, if, you, if we have not connected yet, fill out a connect card, and we would love to connect further with you. Uh, we also, on Tuesday nights, are we're only meeting for a couple more times and then connecting you into other ways in the church. Have a first connections group. You're still welcome to join that. Uh, it's not like you are going to be behind or anything. Um, so we would love for you to, conti- to connect with us.